0: Making it through the second day. Nice to be with all of you this evening. Uh, as you can see, I have a lot of accoutrement, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this my my new um, I I have to admit my new entertainment is uh, is bringing a bunch of readings and and then seeing what pops out. Uh, and I've done it for years on my normal. Weekly group, but on retreats I'm often a little more prepared. But but I figured you're not very prepared for what's to come, so why should I be? <laughs> I did, though, gather some of my favorite readings, and um, and it um, and as I was doing it, I I realized one of the fruits of of connecting. And practicing the Dharma, the Dharma meaning the teachings, the truth, the, just living with the the way things are for many years, that it has produced a, a kind of um, uh, exuberance, a kind of happiness, a joy that is really at the heart of what we're doing. The Buddha was called the Happy One, and I think during the next talk I will describe more the the path of happiness, but. Tonight, I wanted to, to uh, try to speak to the title of the retreat, to Loving the House that Ego Built, to really share with you my inspiration for for that particular title. And hopefully, maybe you'll get a, a bigger sense of that, because it's very vague, in a way, the house that Ego Built. Now, the, the house is... Uh, the word house came from a passage from the Buddha and it was the passage, it was sometimes described as his song of awakening. The words that he uttered uh, after his mind opened to, uh, to life as it is, when he saw clearly uh, through the veil of, of delusion, of, of illusion, and his heart opened to his, um, his deepest nature, which was free, uh, unconditioned, unborn, deathless, as Aaron used the word last night, deathless. And he, he started to sing, as is commonly, um, as is common, for those who have had an experience of awakening. There's some kind of spontaneous poetry. I remember reading from uh, Ramakrishna, apparently after he found himself immersed in this great uh, effulgence of life, the fullness of things, he just, he was his mind became so silent and so connected with everything around him, he went into a kind of reverie, and then he opened his eyes and he said, he let out this song. He said, O longing mind, dwell within the depths of your own nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Do not confine your innate infinity within the mansions of name and form. Your naked awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. So that was, you know, you could tell that he was just plugged in, your <laughs> naked awareness alone, oh my. And it, it has a, at least to me, I don't know about to you, but it has a ring of truth. This awareness, uh, this naked awareness, this, this primordial knowing, pure knowing that, that you are without even trying, without even doing any practice, turns out after all is said and done to be the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. Do not seek your home elsewhere. So the Buddha, he uttered, and I'll repeat this later on in in my conversation. He said, uh, through many births, in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. I've interpreted that as you shall not unknowingly build a house again. We keep building houses, no matter what, no matter how free. You shall not build another house again. Your rafters are broken, ridgepole destroyed, my mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings cessation, to this constant state of becoming, this craving cessation, it has come. No longer going out of myself in search of happiness. I've realized that I am already, and I'm not, I'm just paraphrasing. I'm already immersed in the very thing that I've been searching for. It's the same, same realization in a way. Do not seek your home elsewhere. And he talked about it as a house of self through many births in the wandering on. I ran, seeking but not finding, the maker of this house. In this passage, at least the way I hear it, the Buddha is describing the moment-to-moment creation of a house of self otherwise known as ego, self, uh, the sense of ourselves, the sense of agency, the sense of me, the sense of my, the sense of mine. And when we stop, as you stop right here, that's why we've been stopping uh, ever since you got here, one of the passages, another thing that the Buddha said is you can never arrive at the end of the world by going. That the end of the world is is right here. So when we're right here, you're right here, walking, sitting, noticing the breathing, just the simple reality, and in fact the simple reality you could say the totality of your experience here is a simple unfolding of um, basically six experiences. It's not very complicated. There is seeing, there is hearing, there is smelling, there is tasting, there is field of sensations, and there is thinking or imagining. That's really all that's going on. When we are in touch with uh, this simple reality, we'll just—I'll just pose the question: Who are you? What are you in the moment of being just in connection with these six experiences? Just what we call reality. What are you? Who are you? No one. What's that? No one. no one. But are you not, aren't you here? Aren't you, isn't this room and everything in it here in living detail? But what you, what you may be pointing to is that when you are just here experiencing six experiences. Where is that house of, where's the house that ego built? In real time. Where's our ego in other words? Hmm? No, it's, it's something to see, to experience on, Present evidence. You know what? What do you actually experience? Now, of course, if into this moment a thought of yourself arises, that's that has within it your name, your history, your issues. In other words, memory, a memory arises. So again, it's one of those six experiences. If that memory arises and you notice it as a memory, oh, there's the memory of, there's a a thought of myself. Then it's just become. it's just the, another one of those wonderful six experiences that make up our life it's very simple but what happens when that thought goes unnoticed anybody want to experiment with that what happens when that thought goes unnoticed it becomes, a reality. It, becomes... it becomes a reality in a way yes that thought usually connects with another thought and it starts to spread out into what we call ordinary thinking, which one teacher named Dujum Rinpoche called the chain of delusion. So you can see that we're sitting here and there's basically six experiences and not a huge amount of problem when we're in touch with those six experiences. But one of those six experiences, um, all of them actually from time to time, but especially one of them, the ordinary thoughts, just an amazing expression of our nature to be able to think, to be able to think about what went before and to project what will come, both places that don't even really exist except as memories and plans arising in this simple unfolding of six experiences. I'm just kind of in awe of that, that fact that, that it's through the amazing capacity to think that our sense of orientation in time takes place. That because in our thoughts, And only in our thoughts, we are reminded that we have, that we are somebody that has come from the past, that's passing through the present on our way to the future. Now, what happens to that whole idea when we're not thinking? How do we know that we come from the past, passing through the present on our way to the future? Do we know that when we're present? We can see in real time that that is a, that is a story that our mind tells. That is the, what I call the story of me. What the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, which means self-view, the view of myself, view of self. Ditti means view. And uh, Sakaya is self, otherwise known as ego. Identity view. It's a view, as a view, it's not, it has no absolute reality. But yet, this is where most of us live, in this house that our self view builds. We live almost exclusively in our imagined view of ourselves as somebody who's come from the past, moving through the present, on our way to the future. And because the, this identity view, this self-idea, is um, in some ways, one, it's conceptual, it's an idea, two, it's bound in, this, uh, in a very uh, useful wonderful concept, but nevertheless a concept, is bound up in the concept of time. So t- time is a concept, isn't it? So where is it? Where's time? Here. Where's now? Where's here? Where's a moment? All of these are measurements of time. And they're they're a way that we orient ourselves, and so it's very useful, but they don't have any absolute truth to this concept. Of. They're inferences. It's fantastic that we can think about ourselves that way. If we couldn't, it might be really problematic if we couldn't, if we couldn't orient ourselves in time. I, heard there, I read something from, the, from Oliver Sacks, the, uh, the I don't know how I would describe him. He had some, so many hats. How would you describe Oliver Sacks? A, do- a, neuroscientist. a, neuroscientist. a neuroscientist. A doctor. Rider. What's that? Motorcycle rider. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Motorcycle rider. But he described a person who, whose brain had... Something had happened in their brain and they couldn't construct time in their mind. And they, they actually went um, a little crazy. So it's a wonderful thing that we can orient. But the, the teachings of, of awakening, the teachings of the Buddha, ask us to expand our understanding from more conventional view of ourselves to a, a wider understanding of ourselves. And I'll try to go through a few different ways that, um, that we, we create a sense of ourselves. Uh, and how we can actually see beyond, expand our view of ourselves. So a big way that the the house that ego built, the self idea, is um, is um, is created, is because these thoughts of ourselves in time, somebody coming from the past, moving through the present, on our way to the future, these thoughts are um, mistakenly identified with or excessively identified with, which means I think that I'm actually that person. And I think that that actually defines me. And since time, especially the way that our mind thinks about time, since time uh, tends to be running out, there doesn't seem to be enough time, or sometimes there's too much time, or all these kinds of thinking about time. Time ends up being a source. <clears throat> when we think of ourselves in time, it's often a source of stress. And the number one stress is that, that time has become the location, and Aaron spoke to this some last night. Time, especially future time, has become, in our minds, again, really there's just six things happening, but in our minds, uh, this, the concept of future, the future has become, in our minds, the source of our happiness, the source of our relief, the source of when we will reach the end of the rainbow, source when we will get what we want or get rid of what we don 't want, and each of us I think has a has a list, whether it's we're conscious of it or not, we have a list of what needs to happen in order for me to um, to be become happy now of course, that assumes already that and actually colors your experience in such a way that, you, that this association of happiness with what's next creates a feeling in, the, in real time, a feeling of lack. So the identity view, the view of self, is you could call it the house of self is a house of lack because the house of self is often in a state of, of seeking, of becoming. Simple little Kabir poem. Tell me what I can do, friend, about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. And when you hear it spinning out, it means spinning out in your mind. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. (laughs) I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. This state of constantly working to be happy. This is the the story of me. the The house that ego built is a story of lack. And to the degree that our identity, this very innocent experience that we have of orienting ourselves in space, because it is so bound up in time, it is um, inherently insecure. Because as soon as my identity that is oriented toward achieving happiness, relief, freedom, um, everything I want, get rid of everything I don't want, as long as my identity is bound in time, then there is always the possibility that I might not get what I want. I might not achieve it. And that possibility that I might not achieve it creates a, a, a great sense of insecurity, fear, anxiety, worry, Did any of you see any of these things in your mind over the course of the last two days? (laughs) This is what Bhante Gunaratna said. Not so much about this bound up in time, but what he said about uh, what you realize if you sit long enough. Somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and you never noticed. So we will not stop creating this sense of identity, this kind of crazy self-reinforcing feeling of lack that comes when our mind is toppling forward into an imagined future that never arrives, because, of course, time is only here and now. We're not going to stop doing that. But in the course of our practice, we make a shift, moment by moment, from living out of that living from that view of ourselves to noticing it. Isn't that interesting that my mind is creating a feeling of lack moment by moment? It's creating a sense. It's reminding me. It's telling me, trying to convince me innocently that uh, the best is yet to come. It's trying to it's trying to convince me. It's partly from that advertising that uh, that Aaron spoke of last night. Our goal is to create desire. <laughs> Hermes, Hermes, unbelievable. But when we begin to see the seduction of this kind of thinking, then it becomes as. <clears throat> as one teacher put it, becomes the manure of our Bodhi. It becomes the fertilizer of our awakening. It becomes the cause and the reminder of our love of being right where we are because we see that's Mara. Mara is the personification of the views in our mind about ourselves and about what it is that will make me happier than I am. As one of my teachers put it, um, uh, all search for happiness is misery <laughs> and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being conscious. You haven't maybe discovered that yet. Well, you, you have, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You're just trying to um, get used to it. Stabilize it a little bit. You wouldn't come here unless there was a call from here. (laughs) You know, we're always going out. Isn't it interesting to go back? To look straight at from where you're looking and notice what that is. What is it that's looking? absolutely dead silent, home, peaceful, complete, enough, as Aaron's beautiful poem last night, Um, David White's poem. But very innocently, thoughts arise in our mind called me and if they if they're noticed they just become the the magic of the thinking mind the the beneficial capacity that we have to think but if they go unnoticed those thoughts connect to one another and they spread out into ordinary thinking which is sometimes called, as I said, the the chain of delusion. This is what a woman named Sharon Cameron, how she described this process in her own mind. She said, when I sat this afternoon, thinking arose. Thinking blotted out awareness. Thinking was the release of certain electrical impulses, like a spasm or a twitch that resulted accidentally in a thought. Thinking came from the firing of neurons. When when awareness didn't rise up to meet the thought, the thought was bent by its nature to substitute a false world for a true one. So the world of ourself that we create in our mind is, I call it, the second-hand version of ourselves. In some way, it describes, in an absolute sense, it describes someone who doesn't exist. It describes a virtual you. Yet, that virtual you is made up and this is the miracle of it and the wonder of it. The virtual you is made up of your memories that are very individual, your worries and plans. It's made up of all the influences, your cultural heritage, your, your religious heritage, your national heritage, your, um, your teachers, your gurus, your... It, it's made up. It's been, it's, it's been culled together from everything that has ever happened, not just to you, but to all beings everywhere, from all time. There is no beginning to this sense, this virtual sense of ourselves, but it's, it is uh, an organic unfolding of conditions, of conditioning. It's conditioned by past impressions. When we can see that and understand it, we can see that the house of ego, the house of self, is something that has come to be uh, very innocently very you could call this talk innocence it's come together you've come together as you imagine yourself, and even your body here has come together through no fault of yours. you've been forged by all things of at all from the beginning because you, you can't stop with your parents you can't stop with your parents' parents you can't stop with your your community, your religion, you, you, you can't find a beginning. The, but one of the kinds of thoughts that is part of our personality view that speaks only to the relative truth of our existence, one of those thoughts is I am separate. I am somehow, and this is when it when it becomes hardened into a, a true belief system, I am somehow, I think that Aaron's talked a little bit about waves or something. I don't remember last night, but we sometimes begin to think that we are the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. <laughs> that we've forgotten that we're Immersed in what we're searching for where we have this feeling of isolation, of separation, of, of uh, don't have a feeling of being at home. And that story of uh, the story of lack gets reinforced. I I'm lacking I'm something's wrong. There's something wrong with me. Any of you ever have those thoughts? So again, we back up to simple reality. If you say, you know, I, I'm, there's something lacking in me, or I am lacking, it's a kind of generalized thought I am lacking. And when we connect with that view about ourselves, we often feel uh, intense emotions of deflation or. Um, just a kind of dropping of our energy system. and There's an impact in our bodies to that thought, I am lacking. But if we, as we practice here and we get to know simple reality, those six things, and we kind of wind that thought back, I am lacking, or lacking am I. And we remove the lacking we remove the am and then we remove the i we just took three words away and what do you experience anybody willing to say freedom freedom where's the lack now if we don't consult our memory This is this. Somebody said freedom. Anything else anyone notice? Wholeness. Wholeness. Anything else? Space. Space. How far did we have to travel for that? (laughs) So you just now said. Oh house builder, at least for a moment you're not going to build a house. Your rafters have been broken, your ridgepole has been destroyed. At least for a moment, your mind has gone to the unconditioned. In that moment, you've experienced cravings cessation, the end of you haven't you're not wanting anything that moment. Everything's granted. Everything you've ever looked for is given in that moment. Doesn't solve a bad back, does it? <laughs> mm-hmm. But even a, a bad back, or I don't, I'm not sure what it was that, you, but whatever that is, it's, it's just what it is. And we take care of ourselves when we're when we experience ourselves intimately and directly. So some part of our body hurts, let's say. Knee pain, back pain, shoulder pain. If you're born, you'll have one of those. (laughs) It, it those experiences are what aaron described as um, as unpleasant every experience is either pleasant unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant you know otherwise known as neutral and with the unpleasant this is how innocently we are born into the personality view unpleasant our mind and our body goes uh don't like it. And don't like it, of course, if you notice the unpleasant and you work with it, or you respond to it and you take care of yourself in whatever way. But often before we, find, before we meet it with skillful means, with love, loving, caring about what we're noticing, we have a reaction, not liking. And the not liking is often followed by, especially if it goes unnoticed, if I notice, oh, not liking, that feels like this. We're, and you can start to notice all the kinds of not liking that happens in your practice. But if the not liking isn't noticed, then that not liking hardens into strong resistance, aversion, hating it, and that produces a lot of internal pressure start to feel a lot of tension. So that's the compounding of something uncomfortable with a mental reaction that has, um, it's, we sometimes call it the second arrow. The inevitable discomfort followed by an extra, this shouldn't be happening. I don't like this. I don't want it. I've got to, I've got to get away. I'd love to hear everybody's story of where your mind went with your aches and pains. And fear. Fear. How bad is it gonna get? And exactly. How is it gonna last? Exactly. Yeah, well yeah, and it's What if I end up flat on my back in my room for day? Perfect, thank you. What if I end up on my flat on my back in my room for a day? So this is what what's called um, what's called papancha, the proliferation of thoughts the way our mind and at the center of that little drama is the personality view, it's me. I'm the, I'm the main actor in that, in that drama of, of what's, what's going to be. Papancha is the, this is a traditional definition of the word Papancha, the propensity of the worldlings imagination to erupt in an, eff- in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. <laughs> or very simply, the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. Exactly. And this this little field of experience, of six experiences, we think it's it's not a big deal that everything is is uh, marked or conditioned by a little valence of pleasant and unpleasant. But unpleasant is not always experienced as unpleasant. What often follows is that effusion of mental commentary because our mental reactions, the, the chronic reaction of not liking or the chronic reaction of liking what's really pleasant creates an internal pressure. And where does that pressure go? It goes into that effusion of mental commentary. And at the center of that effusion of mental commentary is the profound drama of me. And especially around things that are uncomfortable. Our mind goes, um, goes uh, problem shopping. It goes, remind me how, how things don't work in my life shopping. And this is why it's a very central part of our training to not only just notice our our sitting body and field of sensations, notice the thoughts, etc., but to notice the common, the very common mental states that tend to to um, tend to hypnotize us when they go unnoticed into thinking that we can't be happy now, and it's precisely that sense of where all this is going to lead. And it's amazing how, how many, I've seen it so much in my own mind, but so many people have reported how a simple knee pain, which is you know not a lot happening. Knee pain is just knee pain. But how a little reaction of not liking goes into, uh-oh, I don't like that. And then into the thoughts, it reminds me, of the last time that I went on retreat. I had knee pain and I ended up in my room for a few days. But it doesn't stop there. It's, I ended up in my room. And, you know, come to think of it, almost every time I do anything, something negative happens. <laughs> and, you know, it happened when I tried to learn belly dancing. I pulled out my... <laughs> It happened when I, when I, even when I tried to, um, to learn to, to sing, I couldn't. I lost my voice. You know, I can't. I don't seem to be able to do anything without having it really turn out terrible. Now, what happened just now? Absolutely nothing, really, except this effusion of commentary. We never really ever left the present moment in truth, but our mind went off into imagined worlds. And at the center of that magical world is the view of myself. The good news, again, I say it again, is that we can begin to notice. Notice the personality view. Notice the way that our Thinking mind is connecting and building the house of self moment to moment. And we can begin, and you will inevitably if you, if you orient yourself and associate more with the simple reality of the present moment, you'll be able to experience and sense and have confidence that you know the difference between what your real and direct experience is and what stories your mind is telling you. The example I often use when I talk about this difference uh, is the passage from James J. Audubon, where he said if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, Believe the bird. <laughs> the field guide book of our mind is that story of, of lack. Not always. Sometimes it's a story of inflation. Sometimes it's a story of deflation. And it's often a story of measurement we're often measuring ourselves based on a the measurement system of good better best or the as the buddha talked about it the measurement system of above below or equal my practice is is their practice is better than mine. My, I always think, think it's hysterical, you know, this is everything one awakens to in meditation is so, so non personal. That's why we get happier. It's so <laughs> non personal. But our, but our sakaya ditti, our self view, can make the non personal so personal, like my emptiness is bigger than your emptiness. (laughs) (laughs) My compassion. (laughs) It's it's crazy, it's crazy. There's an old Hasidic story about, about the comparing mind. One day, a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Then the shamus, the custodian, Watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, "I'm nobody, I'm nobody." At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed to the custodian and said, "Look who thinks he's nobody." <laughs> There's no end to the comparing mind. This is the, the epitome, this is the exaggerated. Craziness of the Comparing Mind. Many of you who've heard me talk have heard this before, but this is for those who haven't. This is from, I'll just read it. In June, the British musical group The Planet introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album. After this group produced this 60-second piece of silence on its latest albums. The representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who wrote four hours, 33 minutes, in other words, 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off. But failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 <laughs> seconds it had thought had been pilfered. That's, said Mike Bat of the Planets. Mine is a much better silent piece. I am able to say in one minute what took cage four minutes and 33 seconds. So it's a comparing mind. No end to it. You now we can laugh about the comparing mind, the mind that the Buddha called it mana or conceit. The, the view of ourself of being above, It's called atimana, below, amana, or mana, which is equal to. And conceptually, it doesn't sound like such a heavy thing, but it is one of the great torments of our mind. Because we literally incarnate in the view that we are measurable. And yet we don't find any measurement in real time. This is all about the house that ego builds. It is a house of insecurity, a house of of always having to figure out whether you're above or below or equal to, caught in that kind of measuring mind. Now this is not something we should blame ourselves about. In fact, when you see the pain and the insecurity that comes with, with living out of, from that comparing mind, from that view of yourself, which is always running out of time, it's bound in time, it's bound in comparisons. When you see the insecurity that comes from that, what do we usually do? Go shopping. <laughs> Go shopping, or we, we tend to, meet our, we're, we tend to uh, exacerbate the problem by being incredibly hard on ourselves. That's why I entitled this, Loving the House that Ego Built. When you see the innocent fruit of the conditioning of of how we're actually conditioned to compare, when you see the fruit of that, you see the fruit of that, that sense of I can't be happy now, the insecurity that comes from associating my identity with, with having something that isn't here. How that creates more insecurity. And the only logical response, in the only compassionate response, is mercy, kindness. This came through to me, and somebody reminded me Crystal reminded me today of a story I told I've told many times because it was such an impactful part of my own practice is I um I was sitting a a long practice period a, a 3 month practice period where I was doing what you're doing for 3 months both Aaron and I and Ashley have been on your side of the cushion a lot so We know what mental illness is about. (laughs) (laughs) But I was uh, sitting in this, in my little, I think, seven or eight feet wide room by 12 feet long room at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And just a little aside, that I happened to have the room in the building, in a building called the Annex. It's now been reconstructed, but... I had the room where the main rain pipe, where all the rain from the roof came down through my room. And when it would rain, it would be literally deafening in that room. And there was no other room for me to move to. So if you don't think I had a little papancha, a little reaction of not liking and a proliferation. That was not the main part of the story. In sitting in this room f- over many months and it, in the days that I sat at Sign Meditation Society, there used to be a, a system where you could decide to, to do your retreat completely solitarily. And people would sign up to bring your meals to your door and do the sitting and the walking in the room. And I did this for a, the bulk of, the, of a three-month practice period in this room. And not only was, the, was I able to start seeing the, the little movements of, of our mind and body and kind of deconstruct the world, that we ordinarily take these gross views about ourselves to be real and the gross sense of our body to be real and everything to be real, it, it all starts to break down. And our concepts about things begin to breakdown. But at the same time, as we're deconstructing reality, our, our mind, psychologically, at least, I, and I've seen this with many others, psychologically, there is a, a kind of regression that we go through. You get very, very young. And it's just part of the, part of the process of insight, is that you, you start to feel like a, a raw baby. And And that's one of the beautiful things about leading retreats. We get to see you recover that kind of innocence. And everyone at the end of the retreat has this kind of sparkly quality. And you may even feel it on the inside. Of course, then you start to speak and you realize my personality is still there. And (laughs) and, (laughs) and it's... But nevertheless, there is a purity that happens uh, as we... Uh, experience ourselves in that most simple and intimate way. Nevertheless, I was in this regressive process and also a cycle in my practice when where everything that, and I think Aaron alluded to something like this last night, that everything that I experienced was painful. Where er- if I saw something, it was painful. If I heard something, it was painful. I felt something in my body. I felt the this intense assault of sense of sensory data, and I felt so uh, young, so innocent. And there was, and I, I had the the feel, The reason I say it's psychological, I had the feeling that the only thing that would soothe me is if I was held. So that told me I was a little bit regressed. And I'm in this little room all by myself and there's no one there to hold me. And just another aside, in that room, there was no closet. It wasn't big enough for a closet. So they had a rack hanging on the end of the room where I had all my clothes. And on that rack, I uh, I had determined and had judged that I had way more clothes than I needed. And then I would often look around the room and I'd say, I have a lot more stuff than I need. And there was a little bit of, you know, you're just so dependent on stuff. There was a little judgment about that. Any of you ever judge yourself for being so needy and dependent? So here I am in the room with the extra clothes and the extra this and the extra that, and I need to be held in the worst way. Nobody to hold me, but I had a bunch of pillows (laughs) next to me. And I was sitting on a Zafu, just like this, on a foam mattress where I also slept. So I rolled off my Zafu, grabbed the pillows, and I wrapped them around me, and I started to... Nobody there to hug me, so I hugged myself. And when I hugged myself, something cracked. And I just started to, to wail deeply. And then I looked around the room, again, from the that, from that eyes of innocence, not through the eyes of the comparing mind or judgment or who I should be. I looked with the eyes of innocence, and I noticed all the clothes, and I noticed all the stuff, and a thought went through my mind. Oh, I've been using that to hold me. And when I recognized that, a crack in the heart and this wave of self-compassion came over me that has never left me to this day. And, um, and that's when I got the, the understanding that we need to love that insecure house that ego built. Because that identity view is bound to time, it's always running out. It's bound to our thoughts that are ever-changing. It's bound to praise, and then we get blamed. It's bound to gain, and then we lose. It's bound to fame, and then we get shame. It's bound to pleasure, and then we get pain. And it's also bound to our bodies, our identities. And our bodies are, are just not so personal. They, they grow up all by themselves, they age, they get sick, they die, and that's beyond anybody's will or wish. I I think Aaron may have said, well, Jack Cornfield always calls it a -a (laughs) rent-a-body. Just while I'm at it, I want to share a little bit of, of... Reflection on the selflessness of this body, the insecurity of this body. It's not, we can't we don't own it. It's not me. It's not mine. Yet to uh, tether our identity to it is, uh, it's a, it's a great source of stress and insecurity. Little factoids. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. (laughs) A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create a permanent brow line. Most people blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That's from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By age 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your home are made from dead skin body makes a new stomach lining every five days. body makes a new liver every six weeks. body replaces new head hair every two to five years. body replaces eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. So in other words, at any given moment, parts of your body are appearing and disappearing. So If you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? So the identity hooked to our body is a house of insecurity. Uh, So we need to, we need to not be harsh with ourselves around all the ways that we, um, all the things that we identify with that are so uncertain and so uh, insecure. We need to, just the topic of the retreat, we need to love the house that ego built. We need to meet it with kindness. Because this is the nature of the egoic mind. It is, by its nature, not securable. That's its nature. And yet, it's very... It, because its function it because its view the self view is one of lack it's constantly and innocently looking for security looking for relief and that search for relief is a part of our misery that leads to more misery so that's why it is such a sign of wisdom such a sign of purity that you have recognize yourself that the house that ego built has also within it, all the, the wisdom intelligence enough to say, take me to take me back to myself. As Derek Walcott says, The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say sit here eat you will love again the stranger who was yourself give wine give back give bread give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image or idea from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. So the fact that you've given yourself this feast, you've given yourself back to, you're giving yourself back to yourself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. What is it in you that knows you by heart? What is it that follows you through all of your ups and downs and all your mental trips? Where can you put your trust? You obviously can't put your trust in these views about yourself. You can't put your trust in a future that never arrives as it's just an idea. You can't put your trust in the body that's aging, Un- insecure. So the Buddha says within this fathom long body is where you find the end of your search. Or as Rumi says beautifully, and I think I'll just close with this, in his poem called Tending Two Shops. Don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only real rest comes when you're alone with your nature. Live in the nowhere where you came from even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one, or I I would change the words, try to notice the one that is a fearful trap, getting always smaller, Checkmate this way. Checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So let's sit quietly. Don't have to change your posture. Live in the nowhere where you came from even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to be aware of the one that's a fearful trap. Getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. Thanks for your attention. I think I want to I want to repeat the song of awakening once more and see if you hear it differently after after the talk. Maybe you won't, but through many births in the wandering on. So just a second. Through many births. We're born into the idea of ourselves again and again. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the, make, the maker of this house. O oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, ridgepole destroyed, your mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings, cessation. It has come. Thanks for listening. And have about 25 minutes for walking. Simple reality. Just this moment.